Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. So a significant political development over the weekend, I suppose. Uh, Brian Jean appears to have prevailed in the nomination battle in Fort McMurray, Lac-La-Bish. Now, the party hasn't officially confirmed that victory. And for that matter, the premier hasn't yet called this by-election. He needs to do so before March. So it is it is looming. It is imminent. Uh, the premier has said that uh, if Brian Jean won that nomination, he'd be prepared to sign his papers. And Brian Jean today is saying he expects uh, Jason Kenney to stick to that. Uh, but this is really unusual and, and I suppose awkward because Brian Jean's return to politics is almost entirely predicated on the notion that Jason Kenney needs to go. That Jason Kenney should not be the leader and by extension the premier anymore. And that if he stays, the UCP will lose the, the next election. So there's certainly uh, an agenda here. It, it's a very much declared agenda. Maybe it's personal at some level, of course, given what happened in the last leadership race. But this really has the potential to divide conservatives under the umbrella of something that was created to, to unify them. Uh, I want to hear from you on this, and we'll get to your phone calls uh, in a bit here. I want to get some perspective from uh, Edmonton Sun columnist Lauren Gunter, uh, who's been following all of this very closely. Lauren, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Did it surprise you at all? I mean, Brian Jean's well-known, obviously, in Fort McMurray. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, he certainly was not the preferred candidate. Your thoughts on what happened on the weekend first? Well, I was obviously the preferred candidate among the members in Fort McMurray, like Labish. Yeah. Um, he probably wasn't preferred by the premier, but um, you know, there's a certain amount of autonomy in all of this. That, uh, that so it doesn't really surprise me that that he won. I, you know, I think in uh, better days for Jason Kenney, um, with a stronger organization around him, I think he may very well have been able to outmaneuver Gene so that uh, a candidate more to his liking won the nomination. But uh, uh, no, I'm not really surprised. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. How much of a blow is this then to, to Jason Kenney and, and, you know, his leadership, or at least the perception of how, how strong his leadership is? Well, I, I think it's a fairly minor blow, but only because it is the, you know, fifth or sixth or tenth blow uh, of the last six months. He's had people he's had to kick out of caucus. He's had um, uh, people make speeches inside the caucus about you know, how the party's hurtling towards a precipice and about to fall off a cliff. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's not uh, liked very much in the province and not much more within the party. So, uh, you know, if this had been by itself, it maybe would have been considered a big deal, but it, it comes at the end of a long string of, of uh, blows for Kenny. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure just how devastating it, I mean, yeah. is, is it better than, is, is it worse than, than, you know, having a, a supportive candidate? Yeah, sure. Is it, is it potentially dangerous for Kenny now that he has someone who's uh, got a presence within the party and whose sole purpose it seems in running is to get rid of Kenny. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's bad. 
but uh, but as I said, you know, we've had uh, we've had a string of of disasters. Uh, what's the next one worth? Right. Well, we've talked before about, you know, some of Jason Kenney's uh, political woes and, you know, discontent within his party, within the conservative movement. And, you know, that's there. And obviously, Brian Jean is tapping into some of that. But at the same time, I don't know that Brian Jean has really articulated kind of what he would have done differently or what specifically he takes issue with. How much of this feels personal to you? Oh, I think it's almost all personal. And, you know, you have to imagine, what do you think Jean would have done? if he had been premier, because he came from that part of the UCP, which used to be Wild Rose, which was disproportionately against vaccinations, against masks, against social distancing, against uh, all of the measures that the provincial government took, as every other government took, to uh, to try and, and halt the, the spread of, of the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't know how popular that would have been. It would, right. would Gene be as popular now as Ron DeSantos, who's the governor of Florida, who was against most of those measures too, and is actually fairly popular within Republican circles in in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Gene would have been that popular. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Gene Gene would have done all of the sort of anti-vax things that that DeSantos or Abbott, who's the, the governor of Texas, have done, but Uh, Even if he had, I'm still not sure he would be as popular as those two because this is a different political culture. As as much as Alberta is much more about personal freedom than most other provinces, much more about uh, personal responsibility than other provinces, I still don't think that we're quite as cowboy as as, uh, some of the states in the United States which have been decidedly against restrictions and and uh, covid and and you know like vaccines and masks and things i think people wanted a little bit of that it right. was the fact that half the people wanted a lot of it and half the people didn't want any of it <laughs> yeah <clears throat> you know there's some irony. I mean, certainly one of the points Brian Jean has made is that Kenny has not been able to to bring people together. But what Brian Jean is doing here is obviously, you know, we haven't really seen anything like it. This is incredibly disruptive, arguably incredibly yep. divisive. The, yep. the risk here of, of a civil war, tearing the party apart, yep. is, is that real? And I, well, I, think, that's, I think that's likely. Um, uh, I, I think Jean... Coming in, I, I, I had suggested in a column last week that Brian Jean probably should have said, "Look, I'm coming back in because I, I think the party needs help. Mm-hmm. I want to be there to do what what's best for the pro- province and the party, and you know, let's see what we can do about reconnecting with voters, et cetera, et cetera." Et cetera. Instead, he's coming in and said, "No, I'm I'm going to be the champion of the anti-vaxxers and and the anti-maskers and the people who think that the party's done a bad job with the pandemic and try and get rid of Jason Kenney." Now his his goal, I think, is sincere enough. He thinks that if if uh, Kenny is still around to run as the premier in 2023, when there's a, a provincial election, that the, the UCP will lose to the NDP. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but but that's Gene's honest belief, and I think that's what his his goal is: is to try and prevent another NDP government. But he's going about it exactly the wrong way because what elected the, the NDP in 2015 was not some some tremendous uh, strategy that the NDP had, was the fracturing of the vote on the right. You had 28% of the vote went to the OPCs. You had 24% went to Gene's uh, 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 Wild Rose Party. And that enabled the NDP with 41% to, uh, 
to uh, to come up the middle. And you know, we have a we have a uh, a new poll coming in in the next day that shows that the NDP aren't even as popular as that at the moment. <laughs> but they are more popular than the UCP. And you know, if if Gene then takes a weakened party and divides it in two, what's the chances he's going to prevent the NDP from becoming the government? Yeah. Well, the other thing is, look, and I mean, you know, Brian Jean is very clear on his intentions. He wants to, to push Jason Kenney out and then run yep. in a leadership race. And, and maybe that'll happen. I just wonder if the alternative happens. Let's say Jason Kenney survives a leadership review, yep. is the leader of the party going into 2023. Does Brian Jean get on board? Does he does he run under yeah, Jason Kenney? Just stay in caucus and, and be a thorn in Kenney's side. Right. Um, you know, he Kenny already has a lot of those in the caucus. Oh, yeah. um, and and I think that they undermine the credibility of not just the premier, but of the UCP uh, collectively. That that you know people look at them and say, oh, you know, they're just all those cranks that sit there in the caucus and complain. And uh, uh, why do we want these people then to try and form a government? Um, I I I really feel badly on one in one sense for Kenny because. I'm not entirely sure how governable Alberta was during the pandemic. You know, you know, did you did you pick the wrong formula, or was it just a, an impossible task from the start? But on the other side, I'm not all that sorry because he has done retail politics very poorly. Um, you know, he has not um, uh, spoken as often to the to the uh, people of Alberta as he should have. He, you know, you look at a lot of other premiers who were out every day, every other day, making the, the daily pronouncements about where the pandemic was going and what was being done. Uh, Kenny left most of that to Dina Hinshaw, the, the uh, chief medical officer of health for the province, who I think did a very good job. I, and there's an awful lot of people who, you know, they roll their eyes every time they talk about Dina Hinshaw. Yeah. I think she's done a very good job. But um, but that a lot of that stuff should have been up to the premier. And, and the very fact that he didn't, come out regularly during the pandemic, and then he took August off when things were starting to fall apart, um, has just soured so many people. I, I think that he can recover, but I think it's going to require him to do things he's not really all that comfortable doing, one of which is basically being uh, the biggest thorn in, Ont- in Ottawa's side, mm-hmm. uh, constantly going after Trudeau on things. Um, constantly reminding people that if you elect an NDP government, you're basically just creating a surrogate for Justin Trudeau in Edmonton. Um, uh, but I, and I don't I don't know that he's prepared to do that. And if he's not, then probably it's a good idea for him to move on. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it's not clear to me that Kenny that Kenny is going to lose. It's not clear to me that he can't recover. But at the same time, too, it's not clear to me either that Brian Jean can't push him out. Yeah. We'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate the perspective. Lauren, much more at edmontonsun.com. Thanks for joining us here. You bet. Thanks. Cheers. Uh, columnist uh, Lauren Gunter with the Edmonton Sun. His thoughts on, on all of this. I want to get your thoughts on all of this. Yeah, look, I think Jason Kenney can recover. I don't think the next election is, is already decided. But by the same token, as, as Lauren said, I mean, you know, Jason Kenney could still be pushed out by those within his own party. There's definitely division whether or not Brian Jean wants to be on the sidelines or not. So what do you make of all of this?
Are you picking sides here? Are you, do you worry about what this could mean for the UCP or for conservatism in general in Alberta? Uh, let's get to the phones here. You can reach us 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. We've got Al on the line here. Al, thanks for calling in. What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm actually a member of the UCP. I'm um, an ex-British Columbian, and I was actually the president of the British Columbia Conservative Party. And I've and and what I see happening right now in Alberta. Um, let's put it this way: I'm gonna I'll give a warning out right now to every conservative in the whole province, whether you're Wild Rose, past Wild Rose, or 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 you're a, 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 a Red Tory. Um, all you got to do is look to the look over your shoulder at British Columbia. We had this division within the Social Credit Party in BC. It all fell apart, and everybody said, "Oh, there'll never be another NDP government in the province of British Columbia." Well, right now you're looking at the fifth term of NDP in British Columbia, and uh, um, everything—pardon expression—went uh, to pot. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Kenney um, has been around a long time. He had a big long. Uh, go at it at federal politics, um, just viewing the whole situation. Um, I'm not sure how much Albertans disregard the UCP as a party as much as uh, I think the majority of Albertans uh, just literally uh, hate the leader. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I can tell you, you won't raise any uh, funding, you won't increase your membership, and... Uh, you you can't win if if uh, the the leader is not popular, and uh, I think uh, unfortunately with the pandemic and everything that's happened, uh, Jason Kenney's uh, run his time, it's, he's run his clock out just like the Bennetts ran their clock out in British Columbia. Yeah, all right, interesting perspective. Appreciate the phone call. Al says Kenney's probably done. Not sure I share that assessment. I think Jason Kenney's a very capable politician who has time to recover here. But he's got some big challenges. So what do you make of Al's comment? Is is Jason Kenney hated in Alberta? Obviously, look, the NDP, the left, they don't like him. But how do conservatives feel? Would conservatives rather have someone like Brian Jean? Or does Jason Kenney still have an opportunity to win them over? When conditions warrant, the bank will use the flexibility of the framework to actively seek the maximum level of employment consistent with price stability. Okay, well, that's uh, Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland today talking about the renewed mandate for the Bank of Canada. The inflation target remains 2%. Obviously, what we see in recent months, year-over-year inflation is well above 2% well beyond even the range that's acceptable in this mandate, you know, between 1% and 3%. So 2% remains the target, but the bank has some flexibility when it comes to prioritizing employment and economic growth. Uh, the Bank of, Canada Go- uh, bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem says this should help Canadians understand the bank's decisions. Monetary policy works better when people understand it. And, and really, this agreement clarifies our objectives and it clarifies uh, how we uh, have and can use the flexibility that is built into our framework. It doesn't necessarily address the question of what's coming, what's coming in the new year. 
uh, is inflation as we see it now going to persist into 2022? And if that's well above the target, does that mean the Bank of Canada needs to use its tools, higher interest rates, obviously, as a way of bringing that under control? Well, joining us for some thoughts on that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, William Robson, President and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, and uh, wrote an op-ed for the Globe and Mail on some of these very questions. Uh, more at uh, theglobeandmail.com, cdhowe.org. Dr. Robson, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so your thoughts on what you heard from both the uh, finance minister and the Bank of Canada governor today? I was relieved that they left the target at 2% with that 1% to 3% range around it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, It hasn't always been comfortable, but when you compare our uh, history over the 25 years plus where that has been the target to what the previous 25 years with high inflation were like, uh, I think it's been quite a success. Uh, I was concerned that this government, um, you know, they, they, they kind of think of themselves as more progressive and enlightened or whatever than people who have come before that they would feel obliged to do something to that target. Um, and, and in the end, what they did was they added some words. Uh, but I think the bottom line is that the uh, bank remains committed to keeping inflation low and stable. Uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, of course, that's the mandate. Now you got to actually make it happen. Right. So what does it tell us then about the way in which the Bank of Canada is likely to respond to, to the current situation? They really do have to get their uh, overnight rate. That's the sort of day-to-day rate that they target, that they announce every six weeks, um, up to a level that's more consistent with where the economy is and where inflation is. Um, there's a lively debate um, among economists and among central bankers about what would be the long run uh, kind of neutral rate that would be consistent with a growing economy and inflation that was on target. Um, and we'll never know for sure. Uh, but right now, with inflation close to 5% and the overnight rate very close to zero, uh, it's safe to say that that's not high enough to uh, restrain the economy. Because uh, if you if you can borrow that cheaply, and there are many sophisticated borrowers out there, and just buy something you know like a house that that you think is going to go up at the rate of inflation or a bit a bit above it. That's free money. I mean, it's it, that's just not a sufficiently high interest rates to uh, take some of the fuel off this fire that's currently burning. How persistent do you think this this current situation is, where we're seeing you know inflation five six percent, Canada, the U.S., obviously a number of other countries? Because initially the thinking was that you know we were going to expect some inflation, but it, it would be short lived. And I think the the thinking has evolved on that, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it has. Many people who saw uh, how much money central banks printed. Uh, back at the time of the financial crisis and recession a bit more than a decade ago, uh, wondered if we were going to see some inflation then. But I think the right way of thinking about what happened or, or you know, sort of an illuminating way of thinking about what happened is that that crisis caused a tremendous demand for cash. Uh, people were quite frightened. Central banks uh, created a whole lot of cash and it satisfied the demand, but it didn't then start moving around the economy and transactions pushing prices up. With COVID, 
initially the same thing happened. Um, everybody was very frightened about what might happen. Nobody really knew. Uh, there was huge demand for cash, and central banks uh, created a lot of cash. So for a, for a little while, everything seemed stable. But then the pandemic turned out not to be as deadly as, as people feared that it would be. And we also had governments just starting to spend like crazy and not stop. And I think the combination of those two things has meant that all that money that got printed is now beginning to circulate. People are spending and it's beginning to put price, push prices up because the economy's productive capacity isn't just it just can't keep pace. Well, yeah, no doubt all of that spending contributed to to inflation. But I mean, as as the ship sailed on on that as a response, is it too late for governments to rein in spending as a way of at this point now curtailing inflation? Well, I think that they should rein in spending for a whole lot of reasons. Right. Uh, one way of thinking about what they've been doing with the deficits they're running, and this is particularly true of the federal government, is saying uh, we're incurring all these costs to fight the pandemic. And uh, as my friend Don Drummond put it recently, and we're going to package it all up in a box with a bow on it, we're going to hand it to the next generation and say, here, you deal with it. Uh, there's a lot to be said for getting budgets closer to balance. Um, and at the sa- when you look at what central banks have done, I think they can congratulate themselves on a job well done early on. Um, but it's pretty clear now that with inflation having picked up and uh, the economy moving ahead the way it is, uh, that w- that they need to do something to to rein it in. It's not going to come back to 2% on its own uh, because uh, the, if, if, if people think the value of their house is going to go up, if a business is very optimistic about its future sales, if a person who was wondering about taking out a personal loan thinks, uh, hey, I'm going to get a raise or a better job next year, uh, then interest rates where they are now just uh, aren't enough to curb anybody's enthusiasm. So when do you think we're likely to see interest rates and, and how significant are they going to have to be, the, those increases? Well, as I said, figuring out what the rate would be uh, that it'd be kind of neutral over the long haul is very hard to do. But I do think it makes sense to be expecting that the interest rate has to be at least uh, up with the level of inflation. Now, we might be seeing some uh, temporary bottlenecks uh, playing out. Maybe the price of energy is going to ease off a little bit. I do think there's a, a temporary shortage story that you can use to explain a little bit of the spike that we have seen and in the U.S. Uh, it's been even worse. However, having said all that, there's a fair amount of uh, momentum. The Bank of Canada's own projections, which are now looking kind of low, uh, don't show inflation going back to target for four years. So at that point, um, it seems to me sensible to say, well, at least the overnight rate has to get up to around the rate of inflation. So suppose the rate of inflation were to ease off to, say, four or three and a half percent. You've still got to have the overnight rate go up by at least three percent where it is now. And what's striking is that when you look at the market and when you look at what the bank forecasters and others are saying, nobody's expecting that kind of a move. And the reason I wrote the column was because I wanted to just get it out there that if you look at past history, how high the overnight overnight rate had to go to restrain inflation, it really has to be at least equal to the rate of inflation. And really, at this point, nobody's looking for that. And what's the impact of that higher rate? I mean, you know, Canadians with mortgages are looking to buy a home or Canadians carrying debt. I mean, you know, that, that could add a lot of costs in, in those situations. 
Yes, it could. For people who have variable rate mortgages, right. uh, that type of thing can be very, very frightening. And the problem is that many of many many younger Canadians, uh, especially you know these are the people that would be likely to buying their new house, they've never seen anything. If you're a bit older, and I'm a bit older, uh, the overnight rate in the uh, late 70s and early 80s got up into the high teens, and at one point it was over 20 percent. And uh, that means that a lot of other lending rates went up by the same amount. And nobody, I'm not predicting that, but um, if you've been through that, then you think a little differently about where interest rates can go uh, than, than if you've never experienced anything other than interest rates in the very low single digits. And the other people that I think have to be thinking a little harder about this, uh, uh, we heard Christian Freeland's voice uh, a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal government particularly has been making a big virtue out of borrowing. Uh, at a time when interest rates are so low. Um, but the, the uh, debt that it's loading up on, a lot of that is very short-term debt. And if interest rates starts to go up, uh, then suddenly all that borrowing they're doing is going to look a lot harder to afford. Well, I guess we'll get some clarity on that. We've got a fiscal update coming this week. Uh, interesting times, uh, certainly, uh, Dr. <laughs> Robson. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm willing to bet that when you look at the interest rate forecast in that document, and of course they base it off private sector forecasts, mm-hmm. it's going to look very reassuring. It's not going to look like there's much of an increase in short-term interest rates coming. Um, but my money would be on something a little more than that because I just don't see how you get inflation back to uh, 2% otherwise. And in the long run, people hate inflation. I mean, if the bank doesn't bring inflation in, uh, it's going to become a political issue, and I think the heat will be on. We'll see how it all plays out. Appreciate the insight, Dr. Robson. Thanks again for joining us here today. Thank you. All the best. Uh, William Robson, President and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org, and you can also read him in today's Globe and Mail. It says, brace for impact, rate hikes are coming. So there's his assessment of where things are at and uh, what's got us to this point. Yesterday, just ahead of the uh, fiscal update this week, conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev pointing a finger of blame directly at the prime minister. He is personally responsible for flooding our economy with cheap cash. His deficits are competing with scarce goods and driving up their prices. We've seen we've seen this before and it is always the same. Inflation is everywhere and always the result of too many dollars chasing too few goods and thus it is here again with Trudeau's inflation tax. The temporary timely and targeted need for assistance during lockdowns uh, is uh, was appropriate at that time, but now we need to get spending back to normal and deficits down to zero. Today, the Bank of Canada's inflation mandate was renewed. We'll talk about all of that. But more specifically, I want to look at what's happening with housing. And housing is interesting because, yes, the price of housing has gone up. But depending on whether you own a house or are hoping to own a house, you're going to view the situation very differently. For people who own houses, rise in value of that asset is, is generally seen as a good thing. For those who are trying to get into home ownership, it's a, it's a bad thing. And obviously, it's a situation that varies right across the country. The situation in Toronto is different from the situation in Calgary. The situation in Calgary is different from the situation in Winnipeg. And so on. So it does vary from, from market to market, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So as the federal government talks about trying to address this problem with a national approach, is it something that we should have local governments focused on? It was a really interesting piece over the weekend in the Financial Post on how housing affordability should be a municipal concern 
and not just a national one. Maybe there's some shared jurisdiction or responsibility here. Uh, joining us to talk more about it is uh, one of the uh, authors of this piece, uh, Murtaza Haider, is a professor of real estate management at Ryerson University, uh, part of the Haider Moranis Bulletin website, hmbulletin.com, which covers these issues. Uh, professor Haider, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So when we look at, at the housing market, generally speaking across the country, certainly housing prices have increased in Canada and not just recently, even if we've had some ups and downs in recent years overall, it seems over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen increases. What, what's, what's driving that in Canada? The primary reason why housing prices are rising very fast in Canada is that the demand has uh, demand for housing has outstripped, outstripped the supply component. And what has happened is that we have not been building housing at the same rate as we were in the 70s, in the early 70s. And over the past five decades, our rate of construction has declined steadily. And and that has led to a situation where more and more Canadians are looking to buy or even rent. And then there's less of supply resulting in, in a faster acceleration in housing prices all across Canada. It was used to be more focused in Vancouver and Toronto, but now it's uh, since the pandemic, it has spread to all parts of Canada. Because I think we assume that when there's demand, the supply is going to meet the demand. But what you're suggesting is that that hasn't happened. No, actually, you know, we we were surprised to see uh, some statistics we computed for our column in the National Financial Post. We found out that um, in the early 70s, uh, we were building about 10 to 12,000 units per million people in Canada. And that number has gone down to about four to 6,000 new dwellings being built per million people um, in, the, in the last five to 10 years, which means that the rate at which we were building has almost halved. Meanwhile, there has not been any drop in the growth in population, which is though driven by immigration has consistently risen over the years, uh, over the decades. And this imbalance between demand and supply may, has meant that prices increase faster. And they increase even faster in places where local uh, regulations are not very conducive for new development. And they grow at a slower play, pace um, where local um, regulations are accepted, uh, are facilitating new growth. So you, you can compare Vancouver with, uh, with let's say, Calgary, or Edmonton, and you'd see that Vancouver's prices have risen much faster. Um, in addition to being uh, of high demand, um, even before 2014 when prices were rising in Calgary, you could see that lots of construction was taking place. So um, in, at the end of the day, uh, municipalities or cities that are um, able to facilitate construction are able to slow the pace of housing prices. Um, and those that do not do so will face very high increases in housing prices over time. Well, and obviously the situation varies. I mean, even, you know, in Toronto, where you are, um, you know, Toronto's a, a real unique market in terms of what we've seen in, in increases in housing costs and just the average cost uh, of a detached home. I mean, you know, down the road, a couple hours away, I guess, in, you know, say a market like Barrie, for example, big differences, right? And so we can compare big cities, you know, Toronto to Calgary or Winnipeg to Montreal. I mean, we see a lot of variation across the country. Absolutely. So Barrie, Ontario which is about a 55 minutes drive from downtown Toronto, um, does not have the same price levels, but the increase in prices have been much faster there as well because there has been sort of a 
mini exodus from the core of the cities to to the suburbs where uh, semi-detached and single-family detached homes with backyards and um, places where people can work from home and live. So those types of neighborhoods that were essentially suburban or even remote urban um, have seen significant increases in housing prices. To the west of uh, Toronto is a beautiful small town called Hamilton with a population of about half a million or so. They saw some humongous increases, like 30, 30 plus percent increase year over year in housing prices, primarily uh, because the demand just increased suddenly when people left and decided to relocate to suburban, bigger uh, places. It's interesting. I mean, here in Alberta, you know, we saw the oil price crash in 2015 into 2016. We saw housing prices come down. And, you know, for me as a homeowner, I think for a lot of other homeowners, that was worrying. The idea that the value of your home has dropped. But, you know, for those looking to buy homes, it was maybe an opportunity. Not really, actually, to be very honest with you. People who, when housing prices are falling, buyers become reluctant. And they think, oh, this may fall even more. So they actually, they are less likely to buy when prices are falling. They are more likely to buy when prices are rising. And that's just basic human behavior. It sounds counterintuitive, right? But it's Mm -hmm. not because why would you buy an asset that is losing value, right? You want to buy an asset that's increasing in its value. So therefore, people buy homes more aggressively when housing prices are climbing rather than they are falling. But one thing that, you know, is quite interesting, and we have made it this point several times in our column in National Post, that um, using the same uh, uh, instrument across Canada to fix housing prices um, is, is not the best approach. Um, take stress test as an example. The government, uh, federal government, through Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, implemented more stringent stress test regulations in 2018, um, trying to address the rapid escalation of housing prices then. And our argument was that housing prices were falling in Calgary. So compared to 2015, housing prices were lower in 2018 in Calgary and Edmonton. And making um, mortgage lending even more stringent would have had a more adverse impact on places. So, yeah. so our argument has been that housing is essentially a local issue. Housing markets are inherently local, and therefore uh, any uh, policy instruments or strategies that people would like to deploy, they should be local rather than national, given the immense diversity in housing market outcomes. Which makes a lot of sense. Um, but ultimately, what is the goal then of, of any of these policies? As you say, I, I don't think it's our objective, or maybe shouldn't be, to drive down the value of of homes, but how do we address housing affordability? What are we trying to achieve? That's an excellent point. I mean, you know, people who are complaining about housing prices because they were priced out of the market, uh, the moment they are able to buy something, they would reverse their stance. Um, Those who are advocating for housing prices to fall become homeowners, and then they change their stance overnight because why would you continue to campaign for lower prices for an asset that you just acquired? So it's a, it's a positioning uh, issue. It is an issue where people's stance changes based on where they stand on one or the other side of the aisle. The reality is that housing prices have marched out of step with people's incomes uh, in Canada for over a very long period. And the goal should not be to bring the prices down because most Canadians, almost 70% of Canadians live in a home or a house that is owned by a family member. So the goal should not be to make lives uh, worse off for 70% of Canadians by having their primary 
um, investment uh, asset lose value, but the goal should be to address the growth in housing prices. It shouldn't grow as fast as it has in places like Hamilton or Windsor in Ontario. Um, housing prices have grown by over 30%, even in eastern parts of Canada in places like uh, Nova, in small towns in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Some towns have seen 10, 20, 25% increase year over year in prices, and that's not stable yeah. given the lack of increase in income. So our goal should be to bring the increase in housing prices in step with people's incomes. If the people's incomes are not growing as fast, then the prices should reflect that. And that's not what is happening. And the reason for this is we have not built enough homes and there's tremendous amount of competition. It's a, it's a common thing now in Toronto that the house goes up for sale and 20, 10, 20 people end up bidding on it. Right. Um, the five bids are very, very common that, you know, there are four or five bids. And I've, um, during the pandemic, early time, early months of pandemic, we reported on a house in the cottage country near Toronto where 70 bids were registered on a house. So imagine the what the lack of supply, what kind of frenzy the lack of housing supply can, can induce in the market. Well, and I know there's some concern that, you know, part of what the federal government is looking at in terms of helping first-time homeowners might end up actually adding to that demand. Um, is, is that a real concern? And is there anything, any value in, in trying to temper demand in some way? Yeah, so what, what would the federal government would do is uh, provide um, incentives and, um, you know, to, to first-time home buyers um, so they're able to compete um, in the housing market. But by doing so, by default, they will increase the demand for housing, um, especially starter homes or lower-priced homes, which are often the, the favored by first-time home buyers. And therefore, it has this uh, unintended consequences, consequence of heating the market even further. The, the goal for the government should be, to federal government especially, is to look at the circumstances behind a lack of adequate housing supply. Look at how housing prices have changed um, and increased significantly over time um, locally, and then facilitate a dialogue between the province and the local governments to see how they can facilitate new land development. I think there are two big reasons for lack of adequate supply. One is the stringent land use regulations that are controlled by the city. And the second is the stubbornness on part of the neighbors who end up being the NIMBYs not in my backyard, and then they are able to convince or lobby the local governments in restricting or prohibiting any further development in their areas. And these two forces have to be checked. They have to be um, not, in a way, dictatorially determined by the feds, but, but feds can use their leverage and their deep pockets to facilitate dialogues where people, governments, local governments, and local neighborhood associations can find a way uh, to allow further growth. Because it's it is not in their interest to make housing more expensive for their children by resisting any new development. By the way, just a quick thought from you. I mean, we're going to be talking about this later in the hour, the, the likelihood or the possibility anyway that interest rates are going to rise in response to inflation. And obviously, housing is a part of the inflation picture. What, what's the potential impact of higher interest rates? Oh, that's going to have a humongous impact. I think when um, the cost of borrowing is is as low as it is today, um, that acts as a catalyst uh, for um, homeowners or potential homeowners to borrow even more. So when interest rates are falling, 
housing prices usually escalate. And when this relationship reverses, when when interest rates in, increase and they would reflect in mortgage rates as well, that is going to slow down uh, an increase, a rapid increase. Because, see, at the end of the day, people are looking at the monthly payment. They're not looking at the price. Um, You can have a monthly payment that could be excessive. um, And and if you recall, there were times as early as in early 90s when the mortgage rates were up to 17 18%. And the monthly mortgage payments were prohibitively expensive even then whereas the housing prices were somewhat $250,000, $300,000 on average in Toronto and elsewhere. So uh, the impact of mortgage rates on housing prices is significant. And if one were to see uh, a growth in, in, in the base rate and then subsequently mortgage rates, I would expect that it would have a, a, a significant moderating impact on, the, on housing prices. We'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight. Professor Hader, much more is mentioned, hmbulletin.com, and uh, this piece up uh, over the weekend at financialpost.com. Thanks again for joining us here. Thank you indeed. All Take the best. Uh, Murtaza Hader is a professor of real estate management at Ryerson University. Uh, he, along with uh, real estate uh, industry veteran Stephen Moranis, uh, compile the Hader Moranis Bulletin, hmbulletin.com. You want to read more of their work. So as they say, the forces preventing sufficient new housing construction are essentially local. Doesn't make it exclusively a, a, a local issue to deal with, but they're a big part of it. We are back with more right after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.